Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer. On this podcast, you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. I wonder what it is that draws people to water. I understand why our ancestors gathered around water. All the great civilizations of the past erupted in and around the great river valleys. Any study of world civilizations takes one almost immediately to the Tigris and Euphrates rivers of Mesopotamia, the Indus River, or the Nile River decorated with pyramids. The earliest advances in technology, farming, governance, were because of the steady supply of clean, fresh water for drinking, for fishing, for sanitation, for travel, for farming. And those are the same reasons that people in ancient times gathered and lived along rivers and along beaches. They couldn't drink the water, but a ready food supply was always available, as was ease of travel. And of course, fresh water was somewhere close by, emptying into the sea. But I ask, how many of you are farmers? How many of you are subsistence fishermen, or commercial fishermen for that matter? No. But here we all are living along the coast, living near water, and we are not alone. Our home, Walton County, Florida, has exploded in growth, if you haven't noticed, in the last decade. It has doubled in size since I moved here 17 years ago, and last year, Walton County was the sixth fastest growing county in the entire nation. And here I thought I got away from all such things when I moved out of the North Atlanta suburbs. And I discover now that they all followed me here. And I read just Thursday that the median house price for the entire county, this used to be South Walton, but I read just this week that the median house all the way to the Alabama line now is north of $900,000, just shy of a million dollars. So we are not alone. It is the the allure of this coast, this emerald coast, the wind and the waves and the water that draws people here. It draws people everywhere to such places. Look at this slide if you would. It's a couple years old. 40% of the U.S. population, 40% of the U.S. population lives along the coast. 40% smashed into 10% of the landmass. Going a step further, 80% of the U.S. population lives in a state that borders water. And if you pull away and look at the global picture, 70% of the world's population lives within three miles of a major water source. An ocean, a river, or a large lake of some kind. Ancient patterns have established these dwelling habits to be sure, but there is something evolutionary, there is something primal, something spiritual 
about being on, being in, or being near the water. In the ancient Middle Eastern creation accounts, especially the Hebrew account that we are most familiar with, creation begins with God's Spirit doing what? Do you remember a line from Genesis 1? And the Spirit moved out. It hovered across the waters. And almost every single religion, be it monotheistic, traditional, indigenous, uses water in their rituals. Water as a symbol of life. Water as cleansing. Water as birth. Creation. Recreation. Water as healing. Water as new beginnings. Water as forgiveness. As fulfillment. And I guess it has always been this way. Instinctively. Like great cats on the Serengeti. Like pilgrims on a long journey. Like ancient trailblazers looking for the coast. Thirsty in our throats and thirsty in our souls. We are drawn to the water. Yes, 70% of your mass is water. So you need that, that precious resource. But there's more to it than that. It's more than physical. There's a spiritual, emotional element about water. I like this quote from Celine Cousteau. Celine is a French-American environmentalist and explorer with a most familiar name. She is the granddaughter of the famed ocean explorer Jacques Cousteau. And she spent her childhood practically living on his boat. And she says this, We are beginning to learn that our brains are hardwired to react positively to water and that being near it can calm and connect us, increase innovation and insight, and even heal what's broken. Intuitively, you know this. And the quote from a famously named French PhD only reinforces that knowledge. We need the water to settle us, to focus us, to wash our minds clear and clean that we might hear and see something different. We might even recognize something divine or holy. Norman MacLean wrote a short novel about his life. And Robert Redford in 1992 adapted McLean's book into a movie, A River Runs Through It. It is one of the finest 20th century accounts of Western living that there is. And it has all the elements of a good story. Rivalry, adventure, coming of age, family conflict, drama, laughter, tears, a young Brad Pitt in the movie. And the book is even better. And the book is filled with all of these quotable lines. There are so many. But here is one of my favorites. All there is to thinking is seeing something noticeable, which makes you see something you weren't noticing. Which makes you see something that isn't even visible. Let's read that again. All there is to thinking is seeing something noticeable, which makes you see something you weren't noticing, which makes you see something that isn't even visible. Water, like nothing else, has the power to turn down the noise inside our heads and open up our eyes to see what we had not noticed previously. Maybe even to see the sacred, the wondrous more, to see what isn't visible. 
And I'd like to think that it was the common collectedness of water that brought the character in our Bible story today to the Zygotti Riverside in the town of ancient Philippi on a Saturday morning all those years ago. I've thought about this woman named Lydia all week, if Lydia is her real name, because I don't think that it is. Some of my thinking and study has led me to the fact that the best translation from the Greek to the English is not that her name is Lydia, but her name is a Lydian from Thyatira. Can we go to the map for this? Circled a couple things for you here. So we have Philippi, which is where Paul and the apostles are across the Aegean Sea. They had caught a boat at Troas to go over there. They go to Europe for the first time. And they meet Lydia. Probably a Lydian, because she's from Thyatira. The text tells us, you see that. That's a city. And what state is Thyatira in? Say it. Lydia, thank you very much. So she's probably a Lydian. We don't even have her name. But here she is, the cornerstone of the church that will be built there in Philippi. Now, here's what we have. Paul arrives in his first passage into a European city. There are no churches. Because Paul is planting churches. No church has gotten there yet. Apparently, there are no synagogues. Because Paul's practice was that when he arrived in a new town, he would go to the synagogue first. And it's a Roman colony. That's a different feel. So there's probably plenty of pagan temples, plenty of altars to the emperor, and all of those things. And Paul turns to his friends, which at this point includes Timothy and Silas and Luke, this quartet, this barbershop quartet of men, And Paul says to his companions, if we were going to be looking for somebody that was worshiping God on a quiet morning, if we were going to be looking for someone who had found a little place of prayer and retreat, where would we go? And what is their conclusion? Down by the river. Down to where the water is. And that's where they go. And what they find there, this Lydian woman, I'll call her Lydia, we don't know what else to call her. This Lydian woman is who they find there, and it should have probably completely surprised the Apostle Paul to find her first. Why? Well, he had this vision. Did you see that in the first verse of the text? I wonder if we can get the text back on the wall real quick. There it is. Verse 9, that night Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. This is one of the ways that interpreters know that this story has a great deal of truth to it. That it is not a fabrication of the early Christian imagination. Because a Jewish man writing the normal religious propaganda of that Roman time and age would have never centered the story around a woman. Even Paul's vision is of a man. So Paul goes looking for a European man around which he will build a church in this city. And what he gets is a Turkish woman. And we don't even know her name. 
There was a rabbinical prayer, and I've used it here before, in Paul's day, in some of the rabbinical schools that went like this, I thank thee, O God, that thou hast not made me a pagan, a woman, or a dog. I think some men today maybe still pray that prayer, or live like it anyway. Talk about patriarchy, talk about sexism. And yet it is this independent, well-traveled, apparently wealthy tradeswoman who is the first European into the baptismal waters and everyone else in Western Christianity follows her. She's first. And Paul could not have been expecting that. I have to tell you a funny story on my mother. And this one involves my son Bryce who is flying back to base this morning after a slew of canceled flights this weekend. But first a funny story about him. He left this morning at 4 a.m. Here is the note Cindy left him on our counter. Do you have your phone, your wallet, your charging cords, your toothbrush, your deodorant, cologne? Have a safe trip. Love mom. We love you. Thanks for your help. Now, this boy is a grown man, and he's an American soldier, as he likes to tell me all the time, you can't talk to me like that, I'm over here defending your freedom. He's on a beach in Hawaii half the time, that's where he's at. So, but anyway, he's a grown man, he's an American soldier, and when he travels, he's still like he's in fourth grade with a backpack book bag full of everything hanging out of it. I don't know how this kid gets anywhere. It worries me that millions of dollars worth of equipment are in his hand sometimes. But that was on the counter when I got up this morning. I loved it. Here's Bryce and my mother back in the day. And when he graduated high school a few years ago. It's been a lot of funny storytelling and reminiscing about my mother. And it was Bryce who told a good one this week that I'd forgotten about. Last Christmas season, Bryce came home unexpected. And he said, don't tell Mimi and Papa I'm coming. I want to surprise them. I said, that's great. So he flew here, here for a few days, and then he road tripped to Georgia with his little brother, with then his fiancée, now his wife, and his best friend from high school. And here they all go to Georgia. And they arrive in my hometown and my mother's house, her little apartment, late one evening. It's dark, it's cold, it's spitting snow, late in December. And Bryce hides his posse and goes to the door. And knocks on the door, all wrapped up in what one set of winter clothes that he has. He lives in Hawaii and Florida. And my mother comes to the door. and She's peeping out through the door like this. And she turns to my dad. Roy, there's a black man at the door. My mother is not a racist. But the only people that knock on my mother's door after dark are her next door neighbor or her sister. Nobody else. Nobody else. And she was not expecting to see her grandson standing. He is supposed to be 5,000 miles away. Roy, there's a black man at the door. And Bryce took his hood off and said, Mimi! And she almost had a heart attack out of sheer joy and surprise that he was there. It's a pretty, pretty funny story. Legendary in the family now. We'll, we'll tell it for years. I wonder when Paul gets to Macedonia... And he's got all this posse of men with him, and they're looking for a man. Well, that was a man in the vision. And the first convert is this purple-clad, rich woman 
who's down by the riverside praying. It had to have knocked his socks off. But at the same time, to his credit, what did he do? He went with it. This must be where God is at work. Because her heart was opened up to what Paul had said. If I can adapt what McLean wrote, all there is to thinking is seeing something noticeable, which makes you see something maybe that you weren't quite ready for. But God is at work in those exact places and times where we weren't quite ready for it. Or at least we weren't looking for it. So if you go down to the river to pray, what will you find? Or if you go sit on the beach as the sun rises or sits. If you go to a mountain retreat and find a little quiet stream. If you take a walk in the woods. If you sit in silence on your back porch or spend a quiet hour planting flowers in your front yard, or take a closer look at that unexpected visitor at your door. What will you learn if you get still enough? If you get quiet enough? What storm could calm within you if you just sit in stillness for a little while and let God and the Spirit of God move out across the water? I think we are a desperate people in need of stillness. Blaise Pascal said it like this. All the miseries of the human person come from the fact that no one can sit still for one hour. We are born squirming and twisting and reaching. And our parents spend two years trying to get us to walk and talk. And then they spend the next 15 trying to tell us to sit down and shut up. But we can't when we are young. We are restless. We are driven. We are on the move. And even when we are still, it's a thousand screens that call out to us. As young adults, we are prowling about for physical contact, for intimacy, chasing what we think we need. In middle adulthood, we're all on antidepressants. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, because God knows this country will make in this world will make you depressed. But it's from the fact of carrying all the weight of our obligations and our busy schedules and everything that we feel like we have to do to keep up. And then we reach older age and many of us are still unable to settle our minds over the past, our fears of our own death, our regrets, old contaminated wounds that we haven't taken, taken the time to sanitize. And what would happen if we took one hour a day just to sit still? What would happen if we took just an hour a week, but we truly gave ourselves to that hour in stillness and in nothingness, listening for the voice of God? I like to imagine, Lydia, this defier of all expectation. She's busy with her work. She's the breaker of the thickest glass ceilings. She's a manager of a business and a household, and she has earned her respectful spot in the town of Philippi, having worked twice as hard as any man did to get there. But every Saturday morning, every Sabbath, as busy as she is, where could she be found? Sitting quietly by the river, 
waiting on the voice of God, drawn by the serenity of that place and the companionship of God's Spirit. So it is no accident that Paul found her there. It was not happenstance that made her the first convert, the first baptismal candidate of Europe. It was here where she had regular and the constant discipline of finding a quiet place, that she was in the right place at the right time to discover everything that she had been waiting for. Once upon a time, there was a great forest fed and watered by a great river. The birds sang all day and the toads and insects all night. Trees flourished, flowers bloomed, all manner of wildlife roamed about without fear. All who entered that forest entered solitude and quiet, and there they found God. For God's home was in the stillness. But then it became possible for people to build buildings thousands of feet high to stop the flow of the river, to mow down ancient trees in a matter of days. Houses of worship were built from the trees of that forest. Pinnacles and steeples were built with the stone beneath the forest floors. Baptistries were filled with the once mighty river's waters. The air was filled with bells and songs and prayers and sermons. Useful they all were, but God was left without a home. Anthony DeMello tells that story and concludes it like this. Hark now and listen to the song of the bird. The wind and the trees and the ocean's roar. Look at a tree, a falling leaf, a blooming flower as if for the first time. And you might suddenly make contact with the God of all reality, and with that paradise from which in our childhood we all fell. All you need to do is to see, to understand, and in stillness, to be at rest. You have been listening to the podcast home of yours truly, Ronnie McBrayer. You can follow me on Facebook or Twitter, whatever your socialization preference may be. At Ronnie McBrayer will get you there in either case. Visit my website at RonnieMcBrayer.org, and there you can stay up to date. On my speaking schedule, books I have written, projects just over the widening horizon, and yes, you can find out more about me than anyone truly wishes to know. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for listening.